Uh, hello, good evening, uh, and welcome to Democracy in Hong Kong, a challenging road ahead, a Latrobe Asia event. I'm Beck Strading, uh, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University. I would like to start this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet tonight. Uh, I would also like to pay respect to the people, uh, their people, both past and present, and extend uh, our respect to Indigenous Australians who are with us uh, this evening. The Trobe Asia is very proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the region in which we live. Now, for months, the world has watched on while citizens of Hong Kong have taken to the streets in protest with frequent clashes with police, outbreaks of violence uh, and disruptions uh, to, the, to the running of the city. And tonight, I'm delighted that our esteemed panel will be here to talk with us uh, about the demands of the protests, to, to sort of look at what these protests are asking for, the implications of these protests uh, and these riots with, uh, between relations with Hong Kong and Beijing, and to think about uh, some of the implications or, or prospects for democracy in Hong Kong. So I am here to, to introduce our panel for this evening, and I would like to start um, first with Yun Jiang, who's uh, sitting here in the red uh, in the middle, who is a senior research officer at the Australian National University and co-editor of the newly formed China Nitian newsletter. Prior to joining the ANU, Yun spent eight years uh, in the Australian public service, including in the Department of Prime Minister uh, and Cabinet, the Department of Defence and in Treasury. Uh, so it's great. I'm really delighted that Yun could make it here today. Uh, she's flown in from Canberra, which was seeing some very wild weather today, uh, because she can provide not just a sort of research perspective, but also perspective from uh, being in that sort of policy-making space. So welcome, Yun. It's great to have you here. Uh, our next panellist, Sophie McNeil, is one of Australia's best-known and highly regarded journalists. A former ABC Middle East foreign correspondent, Sophie is a three-time Walkley Award winner who now reports for the ABC Four Corners program. And I'm sure that many of you here this evening uh, watched her investigation into the Hong Kong protests that screened on Four Corners last year. Uh, so reporting on the protest from the ground provides a novel perspective from which to analyse and discuss uh, these issues. Uh, and Sophie uh, was just telling me before uh, we got on the stage that she has a book out next month as well, her first book, uh, which is called <laughs> First and Last. Uh, that's not the first time that, uh, the, that, that somebody has said that, and it's turned out not to be true. <laughs> uh, but we can't say... Uh, we Didn't Know is the title of the book and it's going to cover mostly your time in the Middle East but also there's a little bit of Hong Kong at the end. <laughs> and so keep an eye out for that, uh, which will be out next month. So it's really great that you've been able to join us flying over from Perth this evening. Thank you, Sophie. Uh, Dr Kevin Carrico hasn't travelled quite as far from Monash University here in Victoria, where he is a senior lecturer in Chinese studies and an Australia Research Council DECRA research fellow. Uh, and Kevin has uh, an extremely impressive research pedigree in socio-cultural anthropology, looking at nationalism, 
ethnic relations and political culture in Hong Kong, but also in China and Tibet. Uh, and Kevin, uh, we were talking about how he spent quite a bit of the time last year in Hong Kong as well. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about that tonight. Uh, and thank you for coming to share your expertise. Finally, our chair for this evening is one of Australia's leading experts in Chinese ethnic policy, Latrobe's very own Associate Professor James Leibold. Now, James is the head of Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy, and his research interests broadly cover the politics of ethnicity, race and national identity in modern Chinese history and society. And we thank you, James, for agreeing to host uh, the event this evening. So James will be leading the panel discussion and there will be an opportunity for audience uh, question and answer in the last part of the session, uh, for which we will be using Slido. Uh, you can see some information on the slide here. Um, please go to slido.com, so S-L-I-D-O.com, on your devices and enter the code hash2425. You'll be able to ask questions which everybody will be able to see if they're on the Slido uh, on the device. Um, you can ask the, the questions as the discussion is taking place and you can also use it to vote on questions. Uh, so we will try to answer the questions with the most votes. It's a very democratic system, I think, of trying to uh, get audience participation until we, we run out of time. If you do not have a device, uh, you can maybe ask somebody who's sitting next to you, but if you're a bit shy, uh, we will have a device out in the foyer. Diana, who you will have seen on the way through, will have uh, an iPad and you can ask your question um, through that device. So please join me in welcoming James, Yun, Sophie and Kevin tonight. And James, I will pass it over to you. Thanks very much, Beck. Do I, can people hear me? I'm not sure if I, the microphone's on. I think, I think it is. I just want to also acknowledge um, that this is uh, Beck's uh, first event as uh, the new executive director of La Trobe Asia, and we're very lucky to have her in this very important role. So uh, good luck in your new role, Beck. Um, now, I know it's early in the year, but arguably coronavirus seems like it's going to be the global story uh, of 2020. And when I reflect back on 2019, clearly uh, Hong Kong was uh, an issue that dominated the global media, uh, at least uh, in Asia and certainly in our region here in Australia. Uh, most of us watched as we saw these uh, sustained protests and in, 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 uh, unrest that really gripped one of the world's most important commercial hubs, which now uh, is in recession uh, as a result of the unrest. We watched these pitched urban battles between student protesters and their umbrellas uh, and heavily armed police, which resulted in the closure of shops, malls, and even Hong Kong's international airport for a short period of time, causing uh, the economy uh, millions, billions of dollars in loss. Um, last year, uh, the Hong Kong authorities arrested over 7,000 protesters, uh, resulted in over 100 injuries and at least two fatalities. The police fired over 16,000 rounds of tear gas, 10,000 rounds of rubber bullets, and 19 live rounds. It's hardly the city uh, that I remember when I lived there uh, after uh, Hong Kong returned to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. 
Um, how did this come to pass? How did this great, uh, very vibrant, cosmopolitan city descend into what arguably is a state of chaos? Well, I'm very lucky we've got really three very smart people to help us unpack uh, that issue uh, tonight. Um, and what I want to do is uh, uh, ask them each to respond to a kind of opening question before we kind of try to unpack some of these issues a little bit further. Uh, so it's a simple question. It's sort of one that allows, because some I know have been there. Uh, I know Kevin and Sophie have been there uh, uh, personally. But how, how do you, because I've been struggling myself to try to make sense of what's happening and unfolding in Hong Kong. So I might get you to respond to um, your entry point into these ongoing events in Hong Kong. And so I might start with um, Sophie. Thank you, James. Everyone hear me okay? Um, I'll start by saying I'm not a China expert. Um, that's for sure. But I accepted the invitation tonight because um, of the interest in, in hearing what it was like to report on the ground there for several weeks for Four Corners last summer. And what was fascinating is that I got there at a really um, pivotal moment where millions had been out on the streets and it was starting to really be the beginning of these, these pitch battles. And you, you saw, you know, on ABC News... Every night there was often a news story about that day's latest battles and the tear gas and who was being arrested. But as you often don't get the time with, with news, it was that lack of understanding of why. What, what is happening? What, what's going on there? Why are people doing this? And so our idea was to go there and to try and make this observational piece that really captured um, what was happening on the ground. And as soon as I arrived... Um, you know, we, we landed, and, and this was just before the airport was swarmed and taken over. And when the protesters were having the ability to just shut down whole parts of Hong Kong within kind of 10 minutes, you know, they, they organised through Telegram, which is like WhatsApp, but it's encrypted, so it's much harder to track people's identity. And they vote things up and down, a bit like our question system tonight. Um, so, you know, people who are denied democracy made their own form of democracy by voting which form of protest should we take? You know, well, let's... Should we all close down the airport? What do you think? And if, you know, that got 70,000 thumbs up and 10,000 thumbs down, then they would go and close the airport down. And so we just rocked up in, in the middle of that. And what I felt hadn't been told at that stage when we were there last August was that this was a pro-democracy movement. People had heard about this extradition bill and they'd heard about two countries and one system and, you know, people were saying, I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't till we got there on the ground, really, because I, I was the same as everyone else, just reading the news coverage. And I spent kind of hours and hours every night and every day on the streets talking to these young people who were willing to, to sacrifice so much, you know, as James said, 7,000 arrested in a society where normally people don't break any rules. I mean, you know, Hong Kong's famous, you can't cross the road um, at, at the wrong spot. You know, you have to walk down, and but now they've taken all the, the gates off during the protest so you can cross wherever you want now. Um, but, you know, this incredibly orderly society was suddenly everyone was willing to break the rules, you know, from the, the young 19-year-old on the street to the... 80-year-old grandma who's swearing at the police. You know, some of the worst swearing in our story came from really <laughs> old people. Um, so it, it was only after a few days on the ground that we really um, managed to capture that th this wasn't just about a bill. You know, this was about democracy, that this was a pro-democracy movement. And it took a while for that narrative to come out. And I think now that, that 
people, particularly in Australia, are beginning to see that, and I hope our report contributed to that understanding. But yeah, Hong Kong is a battle of narrative. Um, there's a lot of people who want to take ownership of their story and put it within their ideological perspective. And it's interesting because I've, the last few years, having covered the Middle East, there are so many people who just see through things through their pro-US or anti-US view. And they want to put Hong Kong in that basket, you know. And some of the, some of these kind of very outspoken um, left-wing journalists in America um, were attacking my reporting in Hong Kong, saying, you know, oh, this is just uh, pro-US, pro-Trump, you know. And it was very interesting to see some of um, the, the brilliant young leaders in Hong Kong who who take ownership of their own narrative um, and, and 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 reject. Um, putting their story and their struggle and their demands for their future and for democracy um, within their story and not just within kind of a, a pro-US, anti-US. So I think I'm, that's my expertise is narrative and storytelling. So I think that, that that's where I came into Hong Kong and I think there's still a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in that space of, of what is the narrative and how people are trying to control it. Yeah. We'll hopefully have some time to unpack that. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the kind of narrative in Beijing versus outside of Beijing and, and Hong Kong as well. But I'll turn to Yun and uh, see how, Yun, how have, how have you made sense of the happenings of the last uh, 10 months? Can you hear me? Well, I first want to say that this is my first public event uh, after leaving the Australian Public Service. So thank you all for coming. You're free. <laughs> I am free to speak, yes. <laughs> So my personal connection to this story, this uh, event, is that so Hong Kong has kind of caused some family conflict uh, in my family. Going um, from your what you said about narrative, so we know that you know in here we hear about pro-democracy protests, people are demanding democracy and freedom from the authoritarian government. But the state media um, in uh, in China, the narrative is quite. Opposite, you know, the pro-democracy protests are basically riotous. They're disturbing peace and order, and all the business are suffering. And the heroes are actually the police. Uh, quite different from what we're hearing here. What they're doing, they're restoring order while showing utmost restraint. Now, if you, I guess if you are from mainland China, like I was, um, the police in in Hong Kong is probably showing utmost restraint compared to the police in China. Um, and what, uh, what they even profiled one particular uh, police who point gun at the protesters. And uh, what they did was they um, did a special VIP red carpet treatment uh, tour of Beijing when he visited. So this is quite very, very uh, different narrative. And that has caused a bit of a um, problem in my family. You know, when I, I have WeChat family groups, a lot of people from Chinese diaspora do. And often I, I see uh, my family members telling me, oh, look at those Hong Kong people. Oh, they're so not grateful for what, what the Chinese government has done to them. And I feel like, well, you know, they're supporting democracy. They're supporting, they want to freedom. Of course, I, I am very sympathetic towards them. So this, um, this community narrative has caused a little tension in my family as well. Um, what the uh, Chinese government has also done is to blame the external forces or black hands of the US, saying this is all jumped up by external forces like the United States, the West, trying to constrain uh, China, which I think is not very good evidence for that. 
So I think those kind of um, propaganda efforts probably unlikely to really sway people in Hong Kong, but it does have an impact to, in uh, mainland China and uh, possibly internationally as well. Another thing I want to point out is, um, so I left uh, China to come to Australia quite young. Um, I remember when I was still in China, I think I was about 10, and when the handover happened from uh, when the authority for Hong Kong went from uh, United Kingdom to um, People's Republic of China, and there was one country, two system was um, you know very heavily promoted, this new thing for the future, one country, two system. But I think what we're seeing now is that this is almost dead, one country, two system. Um, China is supposed to uh, ensure high degree of autonomy and self-governance, uh, an independent political and judicial system, but we are hearing recently, for example, that uh, the Beijing has qualified the pro-democracy legislators. They have uh, kidnapped booksellers from Hong Kong and uh, also recently denied entry of Human Rights Watch executives. So I think from this, the one country to system is unfortunately uh, almost on the deathbed. And what does this mean for Taiwan? Is uh, basically, I think they heard the message quite loud and clear from the from Beijing that really they really can't uphold their end of the bargain. Good, thank you, Yun. Um, I'll turn to Kevin now. Um, so. Kevin, as Beck mentioned, you spent a lot of time in Hong Kong over the last year, and I know you're working on a book on this topic, so I wonder what your early thoughts, what's the, what's the preview that we All should right. expect with your, uh, with your forthcoming work? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, I prepared, um, mainly, you know, intended as sort of perhaps provocations uh, uh, to help, you know, encourage discussion about these protests, their origins, uh, and their future. Um, First, uh, of course, I'm very impressed uh, by the degree to which uh, Beijing, you know, completely misunderstands Hong Kong. Um, if you take the time to read what passes for Hong Kong studies uh, in China, its uh, dogmatism really, you know, sort of borders on self-satire. Particularly since 2014, uh, there has been kind of a misplaced confidence the kind of forcing policies onto Hong Kong will work. Um, transplanting uh, you know, the authoritarian style into a very different socio-political landscape. Uh, whether this approach works in China, I think is still quite open to debate, um, but it's quite clear that it certainly doesn't work in Hong Kong uh, in a context in which you have free media, you have uh, public thinkers who are not, you know, beholden to the party. Um, and not only does it not work, it's really transformed a city, right, where, uh, you know, people are mostly, you know, many people are white-collar workers trying to pay off, you know, million-dollar mortgages. And uh, it's transformed that city into a place where you know, people go and put gas masks on and uh, engage in street fights with the police uh, every weekend. Um, but when I was uh, participating in a uh, illegal gathering uh, in Hong Kong in 2017, you know, everybody was, I think, rightly 
freaked out by the idea of being arrested. Um, but at this point, you know, everybody who was freaked out about being arrested then has by this point now been arrested. Um, and <laughs> they're not uh, quite as uh, worried about it anymore. Um, it's an amazing transformation that'll need to be, you know, analyzed and debated, I think, for, for decades to come. But I, I think there are also some compelling, perhaps more compelling questions emerging out of these events than the already obvious facts of Beijing's mismanagement. But what, uh, for example, should be the role of the international community in supporting Hong Kong? Who should or can protesters work with? Uh, these are questions that I think look a lot different from Melbourne than they necessarily do on the ground in Hong Kong. A similar distinction, I think, emerges in the even more uh, philosophically challenging question of the role of force, right, in protests. Um, we've been told, you know, repeatedly uh, that protests need to re remain peaceful. Um, but I think it's, you know, considerably easier to advocate this when you're not involved than when, you know, police are chasing you down and shooting at you. But I think, you know, many commentators' near instinctive reactions to both questions kind of flatten out this experience preemptively when the reality here is a lot more complex. So I can understand why people are very uncomfortable with, you know, appeals to conservative politicians in the U.S., you know, people going out waving U.S. flags and things. Um, on one level, of course, that's, you know, sort of mega trolling of centralizing PRC nationalism. On another level, it's a, a product of people really having little choice but to appeal to people in power who might listen, um, based in the idea that, you know, strange bedfellows is better than complete solitude. On the use of force, there are, you know, many historical examples of the power of peaceful protest. There are, however, not many examples that I can think of of the power of peaceful protest uh, under CCP rule. If we reframe the events in Hong Kong not only as a fight for freedom, but also as, you know, essentially an anti-colonial struggle against uh, Beijing as the new metropole, we can see that this fight against colonization has been actually quite mild compared to most. So I think if we begin to think of the Hong Kong protest experience not as something that we know all the answer to, answers to and that needs to kind of conform to our expectations, but rather as a type of laboratory of political resistance, we can sort of in the spirit of free inquiry recognize the potential to take away exciting new lessons from this experience rather than laying down rules in advance. I think that's the, the spirit of the protests and I think that's also the spirit we should embrace uh, in analyzing them. Uh, just to 
make one uh, final comment uh, as to, you know, making sense of this and looking forward, you know, the question I've faced most often in the last few months is, what's going to happen next, right? Um, and uh, let me know if I'm getting... Okay, all right. Uh, then, uh, then I'll save that, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We've already got a few questions uh, to yeah, that yeah. Uh, in that direction from the audience. Um, but we'll come back to that, definitely. I okay, think, cool. I think it's on the minds of most people here, probably, including myself. Um, so I just want to unpack a few areas, uh, um, and I'm conscious, you know, I want to get to questions from the audience before too long. But, um, Sophie, I'll start with you. I, I'm, uh, going back to your issue about narratives, it's, you know, clearly it's a battle of ideas that's playing out in the global media. Um, and, you know, it played out for six months before uh, Four Corners, ABC Four Corners, decided to do a story. Uh, which you produced in September called Rebellion. I highly recommend it. If people haven't seen it, you can still get it on iView. Um, but as you began to kind of uh, think about storyboarding that, um, that episode, how do you insert yourself into the story and think about uh, uh, the kind of narrative angle you want to take? And the second part of that question is how do you ensure that you um, have, you know, you do justice to different points of view? Or, or do you decide that, hey, no, I'm going to go all in? Um, so that, that's my question for you. Four Corners, we always try and go all in. And I feel we did, we did do that for our Hong Kong um, report. Um, I mean, each, each story is different, but in terms of just capturing that story, it was very observational. Um, if you've, you've seen it, we just are there kind of night after night. What, and we were there at this critical time where um, the, the police violence had really peaked um, there had been one particular Sunday night. It was it, we were all sitting there, and nothing much had happened on the Saturday, and suddenly everything just went off on this one Sunday afternoon. There'd been a peaceful gathering at lunchtime, and then suddenly the whole city had shut down, and there had never been that that many um, just individual incidents, and they were just popping up all over the city. Like your telegram was just going off, and as a journalist trying to cover these protests, it was a nightmare because you know, be water, <laughs> you don't know where they're going to be, and so you're just trying to watch Twitter and Telegram and WhatsApp and just stay in touch with the, the people you're connected with and find out, you know, where, where are we going tonight? What's happening next? And and the, the police had... The, the, the images... I mean, we the police were so busy trying to violently suppress these, these protesters that they were letting us film them. I mean, it's got to the point in the last few months where they've gone more out of their way to try and, you know, block people filming. But at that stage, it was still quite new, this violence. And so... We were getting up right close and they were just beating these young people and it was all going out. Like as soon as they, you know, there was one young kid who they pushed down to the ground so hard and his, some of his teeth came out and there was blood on the floor of the subway station and they were just smashing him. And, you know, within 10 minutes of that happening, everyone saw it on Twitter, everyone saw it on the telegram, it was all going around. So then that, that night just escalated and escalated and got to the point where just everywhere the police went that night, we were filming, people would see them gather and they'd come down from their apartments. So you had the young frontliners dressed in black and these are the often the younger protesters who go and build the barricades and they're, they're called frontliners. But then you'd have people just in their pyjamas come down from their apartments and just swear at the police and, you know, tell them to fuck off and um, call them pigs and liars and, you know, kick the police van and... Um, so we were we were f filming all that and you know finding 
particular people to follow. We had to be very careful about people's identities. You know, the frontliner we interviewed, um, you know, he had to come to our hotel. We had to, um, you know, he film him wearing his goggles and his face mask and um, other people had to give him a fake name. So, you know, you have to be very careful. You can't just kind of go in somewhere, film someone, you know, your own purposes and leave. That's the worst thing you could ever do as a journalist. People, you know, it, it's not just a story, it's people's lives. And so that was a big consideration. Um, but, you know, we showed it warts and all because the protesters also got really violent when we were there. Um, there was so much anger over... Uh, a young woman who was shot in the eye in Mong Kok, was it, I think, that, that weekend? And there was fear she'd lost her eye and she certainly um, went blind for a period of time. And that's when they made this decision to swarm on the airport. And we were there that night and it all went kind of horribly wrong where two um, mainlanders that they suspected of being undercover police who the night before had stirred up trouble undercover police pretending to be protesters. So they were spotted in the airport and they were nearly lynched. You know, they, they had to get um, an ambulance in to get these two guys out. And, and you know, we, we showed all of that. So we didn't try and... This is the thing with, with um, some versions of the story coming out of Hong Kong is, you know, yeah, protest is good or protest is evil. No, we just captured everything that went on in that time and we showed um, the courage, the bravery... Um, you know, the, these amazing kids who will stand there and tell you, yeah, I'll go to jail because I don't want my kids to live under this authoritarian regime. You know, a 20-year-old student who's just got an amazing um, perspective on what his future could be like and how he's willing to sacrifice so much to fight for the greater good. Um, so we filmed all that, but we also showed, you know, what happens when you have this leaderless protest movement um, and when it goes wrong. So... Yeah, we, we just tried to show what was happening on the on the ground. Sydney, you were terrified, or I mean, there must oh, be interesting well, <laughs> precautions that you had to take as a journalist I, in that setting. I, I took my flak jacket from the Middle East, but I didn't end up having to wear it because at that stage they weren't firing live rounds. Yeah, but you wow. know, they did start not long after we left. Um, and yeah, you you had to be careful. But the best thing about Hong Kongers is that everyone kept coming up to me, like in the middle of like the tear gas going off and rocks being thrown and some little 16-year-old kid would run up to me and say, be careful, you know, and and you, as a reporter there, you had to wear these bright yellow high-vis mm. jackets and you'd often just wear them, you know, because they got so disgustingly hot and sweaty because mm. it was height of summer and, you know, it was still 32 degrees mm. at 10 p.m. when you're out on the street. Mm. And so you just wore them all the time because you didn't want to touch them. And people would just come up to us and offer us food and water and, like, aunties would come try and feed us because everyone was so thankful. Like, everyone kept coming up and saying, thank you for being here, thank you for showing the world. And, you know, it's hard as a reporter because you'd like to think that it made a difference that you were there. Does it? Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's one question that's interesting. What, what has changed in terms of Australian public policy? Now, now we know what the Hong Kongers want, what they're sacrificing themselves for. Has that changed anything in Australia with our politicians? Mm. You know, free trade agreement got signed with no human rights clause. No, good point. Um, I, I see some kind of themes emerging. We've got um, history, we've got competing narratives. I think another one, you and I'm going to direct this one to you, is about identity politics. So uh, surveys, and there have been numerous surveys of Hong Kong residents, show that the vast majority don't identify as Chinese. So most identify as, uh, as Hong Kong, Hong Kongese. 
Um, and 71% said that they are not proud to be a national citizen of China. So I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit, because I know you're, you're not from Hong Kong, and you're not a Cantonese speaker, but what, what are the identity politics uh, from your perspective that are at play here? I think um, it really misfired on Beijing. So I think what Beijing has done, what its action has done in encroaching on Hong Kong's autonomy has made people, made people in Hong Kong actually more antagonist towards Beijing and create a stronger Hong Kong identity contrary to what they want. So I think they've really miscalculated and it really backfired spectacularly on them. But unfortunately, it really can't go back down. It can't compromise by showing your weakness. So it just has to keep going. Um, identity is a very tricky issue. Um, so it comes from language, from shared history. So I think Hong Kong people see themselves as special, or everyone see themselves as special, really. But I mean, even in China, not everyone in China see themselves as Chinese first and foremost. Maybe if you ask them in Australia, they will say, OK, I'm Chinese. But if you're in China, you ask them, what are they? People might say, I am Chinese. I am Beijing person. Um, so it's, identity is a quite fluid issue. And identity usually forms much stronger when there is an opposition. So with Beijing, then Hong Kong forms a stronger identity. Um, but unfortunately, this has also led to some incidents of prejudice, as you have mentioned. Um, there has been attacks on people from mainland and people who um, speak Mandarin. There have been attacks and discriminations. So that's the unfortunate result of this um, strong identity. We'll remember the incident, I think it was up in Queensland, right? University that, of Queensland, uh, yeah. yeah, where, yeah. So where you have this uh, identity politics spilling over into Australia amongst communities here as well. Um, Kevin, I'm going to ask you an unfair question, okay? Um, put yourself in the shoes of Xi Jinping, which I just loved it. That's, I, I love that thought. Um, um, and what would you do? And before you answer, uh, let Hong Kong go, you know that she, the bottom line for the Chinese Communist Party and Xi is not to compromise on sovereignty issues, right? Mm. So that is, that is the bottom line. So yeah. we take that off the cards. What, what, what would a sensible, you know, pragmatic Chinese politician do to try to defuse this situation? Yeah, yeah. Well, a sensible, pragmatic <laughs> Chinese politician may not have the family name Xi, but... Uh, I think, you know, the Hong Kong situation, uh, I've used this metaphor before, uh, I always think of um, Pavlov's experiments with uh, dogs, right? And, um, you know, Hong Kong was promised autonomy, was promised democratization, but, uh, you know, starting from 2004, Beijing said political reform, that's not, you know, up for Hong Kong to decide. It's up for us to lay out the timeline. So from 2004 onward to 2014, you have these constant discussions about political reform and this horribly painful incrementalism, right? Working toward promised universal suffrage, 
And then at the end, you know, what people found most disappointing was that universal suffrage turned out to not be really what they were expecting insofar as there was pre-screening of candidates in the 2014 political reform proposal. And essentially, all of that discussion, I think, was just kind of you know, that Pavlovian bell ringing with people salivating, waiting for that moment in which they would have a say, a, a, you know, decisive say in their own politics. Um, and that buildup of expectations, unfortunately, you know, meant that even a moderate proposal that may have been acceptable in 1997, if it had been put forward, was just treated as, you know, ridiculous uh, in 2014 and unable to meet people's demands. So one unfortunately can't, you know, go back in time to fix, uh, you know, all, all of the mistakes that have been made. Um, that have led to, you know, ever greater divisions between China and Hong Kong. But, uh, you know, the central government could, you know, for a start, just begin, you know, abiding by its own promises and its own laws, um, such that it only handles uh, matters of diplomacy and defense. Um, but, of course, if they started doing that, that wouldn't be the same central government now, would it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Um, thanks for your uh, attempt to kind of imagine yourself as she. Um, I think you'd be a great she, personally. Um, I'm going to kind of uh, jump in. There's some questions. Please keep the questions coming because I've got them here and I'm looking at them. And um, I want to kind of, because uh, you, you brought this up and someone has commented about... Um, and I'll throw this open to the panel. And all of you, feel free if you want to comment or you don't have to. But the question was sort of uh, put yourself in the shoes of your ordinary uh, mainland Chinese student. And how do they see the events that are unfolding in Hong Kong? In particular, this person asks, you know, how, what led to that scuffle that occurred out the, outside the state library not that long ago? So how do you... How do you, how do you, and here I'm particularly talking about the, the, the young Chinese students from the mainland. How do we explain their uh, very, very firm views on, on the Hong Kong issue? Does anyone want to take that on? Well, first, not everyone has the same view. I guess some Chinese students from mainland might hold a quite hardline view against pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong while others may not. It all depends on the experience. For example, they may have friends from Hong Kong who then communicate with them, interact with them to share some experiences. But if we consider someone perhaps who recently arrived, um, they may have undergone through, for example, patriotic education in China, who is a believer of nationalistic sentiments. And nationalist sentiment is not just from top down. It is quite also bottom up. There's a uh, word called angry youth in China, which is um, they're quite nationalistic about you know China's sovereignty rights, territorial issues. Um, from that perspective, if they really consider of utmost importance to be sovereignty and territorial integrity, and they don't want any interference from other countries, then they probably see this Hong Kong issue as something that's infringing on um, Chinese sovereignty. So they 
probably get quite angry about it, and they may also say that any comments from uh, Western media is seen as attacking uh, the Chinese state, the, the party state, which for some people may perceive as attacking on all Chinese people, some, for some people that is. Um, so that could quite inflame quite a bit tension because you feel almost personally attacked that, you know, that all these people are speaking about, they have been misinformed, really. If, if you believe the uh, Beijing's version of truth and all this Western media has been misinformed, so you can be quite angry about it. And then perhaps you, because you're nationalistic and people around you are also nationalists, perhaps you want to, you feel like you are righteous in taking it out. And sometimes in a violent way, not everyone, of course, taking it out a violent way. Um, there are respectable, de respectable debates around, but some people may feel like they want to take it out in a violent way. Yeah. Does anyone else want to comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, you know, at the moment, um, if you're a young, you know, mainland student studying here and you look at some of the media coverage, you could understand why people would feel that, you know, China is under attack. Um, in the definitely the past year and I think this is part of the, the problem with, with the narrative is that the media has to get better at talking about the CCP <laughs> you know that they often don't distinguish between you know like China detention camps for you know the Muslim Uyghurs it, instead of calling it Beijing or the Communist Party so this idea that that the Chinese people um, are somehow the enemy, or that there's something wrong with that. No, it, it's an authoritarian regime who who does the worst things to their yeah. own people. So I think there needs to be much better education within the Australian media. I think the ABC is pretty good, but you know the commercial media can you know <laughs> make a lot of mistakes sometimes, just to be polite. Um, so I think we need to be really careful with with language, and it's same with our politicians. You know when. When, when they get up in Parliament and, and attack um, policies of, of the Communist Party, we, we just need to be real, really careful because if you want to try and highlight the, the cost of this authoritarian regime, um, you're not going to win the support of a mainland student studying here by ostracising them or making them feel alienated. They will feel under attack and will want to stand up and defend, defend that. So I think that there are opportunities here with, with the huge number of students that we have from the mainland um, to open their minds. But, you know, if, if, if it's done the wrong way, that they will just be on the defence and minds will be closed. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, it's been uh, four months and one day since uh, Sydney Today wrote a hit piece about me, so I'm going to sit this one out. But, uh, no, well, Kevin, no, no, uh, uh, you, you can't. No, 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 I think you're no, capable that, of sitting that, it out. That, that's a joke. That was a kind of an opening uh, onto something I wanted to say uh, more generally. You know, when uh, that happened in October, you know, a, a lot of students who knew me, who read, you know, Melbourne Today, Sydney Today, that wasn't my advice, but they still read it. Um, you know, wrote to me, um, you know, very worried, you know, saying like, oh, you know, oh, I, I just read this and it misrepresents you horribly, you know, and, you know, I hope this doesn't have any impact on you, uh, that kind of thing. Um, now, I mention that because I think that 
my own political opinions uh, on matters related to China at the moment, you know, um, aren't going to be, you know, shared on, you know, China Daily or anything like that. They're kind of, you know, on the far edge of uh, respectability or beyond that. Um, but when I talk with students, many of whom have uh, quite different opinions than mine, and of course, I've never met anybody who has the exact same opinion as me, I, I do try to humanize, right, um, people who hold different opinions, uh, and uh, I also try to do the same in dealing with uh, people whose opinions differ uh, from mine. So, you know, to show that somebody can, you know, think that Taiwan is uh, already an independent nation, but still be a fine person to talk with and, uh, you know, even be able to make jokes and laugh together, you know, that's uh, an important step. Um, and so um, I do think it is a mutual process and sometimes that mutuality isn't there, right? Uh, but I think uh, I, you know, in all my interactions, try to try to model that ideal of um, highlighting that, you know, somebody can have opinions that you disagree with strongly, but still just be a fine person. Mm, good point. Um, now, there's a bundle of questions. I love this thing. I don't have to do any of the hard work. I just read these things. But there's a bundle of questions around, essentially, uh, what do we do? And what are the implications for Australia? And what should we do? Uh, so a couple of uh, the questions point out the fact that I think everyone's aware of our deep economic dependence on the mainland, uh, the fact that our leaders thus far have expressed concern for the violence in Hong Kong. Should we do more? And if so, what should we do? And I note that the United States did pass the Hong Kong Human Rights Bill uh, that did uh, outline a range of sanctions uh, on Hong Kong leaders. Um, is that something we should do? So I'll throw that open to the panel as well. I mean, what, what does it mean for us and what should we do? Anyway. Well, I think want to tackle that one? one thing that I think our politicians need to do is get their positions much clearer. I think what's become, well, one thing that is clear is that they don't really know what to do <laughs> with China. And, you know, Xinjiang and Hong Kong has made things really awkward for them in the past year. And I think public sentiment has really changed. You know, we always knew that China was this authoritarian regime. You know, we knew about Tiananmen. We knew that we, you know, our biggest trading partner, we, we knew that. But I think what has changed in the last year is, is learning about the horrors of, of Xinjiang and, and seeing the struggle in Hong Kong. And I think public sentiment has really shifted. But I think our politicians haven't come up with a position that's clear. The ALP, um, you know, that Penny Wong made some quite strong comments about Hong Kong. Um, but, you know, other more interesting characters have stood up and, um, you know, attacked... Uh, Aspie and things like that in Parliament recently. I don't know if you saw Kim Carr's comments, quite interesting. And I, I think the one problem with when you talk about China at a human rights level, if you don't have a history of expressing concern over human rights and then suddenly you're really concerned about Xinjiang and Hong Kong, then people don't take you seriously. And this is the problem with the US. This is a problem with, you know, Pompeo coming out and 
and, and slamming Beijing for what they're doing in Xinjiang, right, rightfully so, but, you know, you can't talk. <laughs> and it's great to have, you know, Andrew Hastie stand up in Parliament, and he loved the report we did on Xinjiang. You know, he said it was a fine example of journalism, and I'd like um, the Liberals to remember that if they're going to cut the ABC's budget. You know, Andrew Hastie <laughs> made really glowing comments about our report. But, you know, um, China is not the only place where horrific human rights abuses are occurring. I mean, look at what our mates, the Saudis, are doing, you know. Look at what's happening in many um, parts of the world. So I, I think this is the problem with, with, with China is that for conservative politicians, um, their, their comments on human rights don't, don't hold much... Um, yeah, they don't have much moral high ground to come from. So... Um, but yet, in terms of um, our politicians, I think that's that's something that we're still waiting for. They still don't exactly know how to respond to Xi Jinping and his expansionist um, new approach. I have to totally agree with you there. That, <laughs> that's um, boring. <laughs> I think Australia needs to take personally. I think Australia needs to take a principled stand on human rights issues. Um, human rights should not be just an issue where we uh, basically criticise China just because it maybe a competitor with the United States, exactly. we should be criticising human rights abuses everywhere, um, you know, even but, if but, it's but our ally. why, I mean, you were in PMC, so give us some insights from inside the, <laughs> the behind the secret curtain. Why? Well, I'm not sure if I can. Um, I might have to go to jail if I give you any insights. Why is it difficult for our politicians to do that? Well... It is difficult for politicians because they have their constituents. Um, it, if you take a stand on human rights, unfortunately, you basically... No one likes you. Who well, just doesn't win any votes in this country. That's yeah. the sad thing. You, you usually either have to be pro-China or pro-United States, and then at least someone will like you. But if you're for human rights, unfortunately, I don't think you win much constituents in Australia. Very sad. I, I wish that was... Not the case. Um, but practically, what should Australia do? I think as a middle power, Australia, of course, should um, work with other countries on human rights issues as well. Um, you know, uh, countries like countries in Europe, probably very interested in that. We should definitely cooperate with them and looking at um, going through, for example, multilateral, um, multilateralism instead of probably just um, doing anything unilaterally. Kevin, do you want to? Do you have any bright ideas? Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, I have a lot of ideas about what I think you know, Australia should do. I think the real question is what you know, Australia will do. And in that regard, I think it's quite hard to say. I, I haven't seen too much action on the Hong Kong front. Um, and, you know, I think that's unfortunate. Um, but... That, what, about, uh, what about global Magnitsky sanctions? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, would I that mean, be a... Yeah, I mean, do you, yeah. I don't know to the extent you understand the Hong Kong human rights bill the U.S. passed, but I yeah. do think it had some sanctions attached. And are yeah, they effective? Yeah. Do they work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, uh, various student union groups in Hong Kong have, um, you know, drafted lists of um, Hong Kong officials who should be, you know, sanctioned under the Hong Kong Human Rights 
and Democracy Act. Um, I do think that, um, you know, it, it would be excellent uh, if Australia, um, you know, followed that example and uh, implemented uh, similar laws, um, which I think, you know, satisfy some of the points that uh, you were both making in terms of, you know, aiming to protect human rights in general uh, rather than, you know, targeting any particular country, right? Um, so that is, uh, you know, a promising avenue forward. And um, I'll hope that, um, you know, uh, people uh, do take the time to read uh, the various uh, submissions uh, to the recent inquiry on uh, Magnitsky-style uh, laws that um, are now uh, up online. I don't know quite when they were published, but I I noticed them online yesterday. So. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I can't see at the moment that there'd be the political will from either side of politics to get that kind of controversial bill through Parliament. I mean, that's mm. a sad thing at the moment. Also, Where? I'm not um, quite sure that sanctions actually will work. I think part of it will actually work. I don't see any point in imposing sanctions if it doesn't work. Mm. I have to see evidence that sanctions will actually yeah, yeah, I think, you know, Magnitsky is, uh, style sanctions are focusing on, you know, particular individuals, right, uh, rather than, you know, sanctioning Hong Kong or China as a whole, which would be, you know, quite a uh, messy and <laughs> unlikely uh, proposition. Um, now, um, there is, I think some signs of evidence that this may work. Um, if we look at the recent uh, district council elections, um, very few candidates were uh, disqualified. Um, and I know some people who ran, I know some people who won, and I can tell you, they would not be able to run in the legislative council uh, elections back in uh, 2016, okay? They would have been disqualified. Now, it's impossible to know why there were so few uh, disqualifications, but I think most evidence points to the fact that uh, returning officers were concerned about uh, potential sanctions under the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. And as a result, one election officer considerably delayed uh, the, I think, predetermined conclusion of um, disqualifying Joshua Wong uh, for running in the elections. Um, ended up calling in sick for a week, you know, and um, eventually uh, the task was passed on to um, another official who uh, followed through on, you know, again, what I consider a predetermined conclusion. That's circumstantial evidence, but it would seem to suggest to me that perhaps, you know, officials in Hong Kong who do have links to, um, you know, countries all around the world, Australia, uh, the United Kingdom, the United States, um, are, I think, concerned about uh, these sorts of targeted sanctions holding them uh, accountable in uh, a situation in which uh, there's really few other options to hold them accountable. Uh, I, I think we're now officially in the Q&A time, but I've been 
uh, dipping into your questions already. But um, before I get to um, uh, Corona and uh, where we go from here, I just want to circle back to the role that the Hong Kong demonstrations played globally. Um, many of you be aware there really hasn't been a spate of global protests uh, like we've seen over the last year, uh, arguably since the Arab Spring. Uh, we had unrest uh, in protests in Indonesia, in Catalan, Chile, Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq. So I'm wondering what the panel thinks, to, to what extent was this inspired by what was happening in Hong Kong, the way the media was reporting on it, or uh, certainly there are also local dynamics here, but are we seeing a new wave of democratic protests, or is, is this kind of a, just a blip? I think tactics, you know, I think that they've been um, exporting Hong Kong's tactics has been quite successful. I was in Barcelona recently, um, Catalan Public Television played our Four Corners story and they invited me to come and speak. I'd never been to <laughs> Spain. I was like, why? You know, so they were just blown away by the Hong Kong protests and because of their struggle for Catalan independence, they've just seen some of their leaders go to jail for holding a referendum and they were studying our Four Corners. <laughs> They were, you know, how they organised the encrypted groups, you know, leaderless protests, you know, suddenly appearing and um, I was a bit worried. I was like, gosh, I wonder if I'll have trouble getting into Spain after this. But they, they, they studied it and then they went out and contacted some of the Hong Kong leaders themselves. Um, I've got a lot of friends covering the Lebanon protests uh, over the last few months. Same thing, that leaderless, you know, social media organised event. Um, so I think one thing that... I mean, Chile, similar things. One thing that you do have in common in all these places is a large number of young people who don't have much to lose. And, you know, Beijing has blamed, has pointed to economic uh, reasons for these protests. And, you know, the government, Carrie Lam has tried to say, oh, you know, house prices and things, you know, will help with that. And it's not about economics. But when you have that many young people who still live at home and don't have, um, you know, they're not married or have kids yet because they can't afford to in Hong Kong. It's so expensive. They can't move out and have their own apartment and they might not have a good job yet because, you know, the economy hasn't going very well. So then there's there's nothing to lose. You can go out and get arrested because you don't have mouths to feed or you don't have a good salary or you're still a student and you're still living at your parents' house. And that's very similar. You've seen these protests in Chile and in Lebanon as well, these, these young people around the world. Um, and so they've picked up on, yeah, the, the amazing efficiency of the Hong Kongers um, and their technological skill at organising and, and those tactics have been exported. Yeah, it's been interesting to see. Other thoughts on the other issue? And what do you make of, because uh, one of the questions that came in was, to what extent is it driven by economic concerns? Are there not? Um, I mean, Sophie was saying, and I think I agree with you, it's not chiefly about economic concerns, but uh, don't we have, in the case of Hong Kong, a kind of transnational elite or trans-border elite uh, who have made tremendous amounts of money off investment in uh, mainland China? And there's this disconnect, at least, uh, you know, from, from my own personal experience. So, I don't know, either you or Kevin, do you want to say anything about that? Um, I think the support for pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong is quite broad. So it's not just, you know, the youth or students. We're seeing quite mass movement. 
I think uh, it's a one in every five. There was a huge protest. So it's not if it's economics usually be constrained to a small section, but it's quite broad based support. So I think economics probably some dimension, but it's mainly about democracy. Yeah, I mean, I um, I, I tend to think that Beijing. Know, tries to solve tries to solve political problems by economic means, right? And so I feel like whenever there's a protest, there's a desire to explain it as, you know, an economic situation. And then like, oh, if we just, you know, throw money at it, then everything will be fine. Um, but, but, you know, protesters who I know personally didn't strike me as in any way impoverished or economically challenged. Um, many people are, uh, you know, particularly, uh, I think, fairly well off. And um, uh, I even know many people who uh, I think would be considered, uh, you know, a bit to the right of, uh, you know, the average academic who they you know, decry as, you know, Zogao, uh, like, uh, uh, well, I, I won't uh, translate that, but it's a, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, running dog. Di di discriminatory term for uh, leftists, right? Um, so uh, I think... Um, I think economics as central to the uh, protests... Uh, is more of a uh, narrative that comes out of Beijing and then more broadly out of certain fields of academia than um, anything that actually comes out of the, the protests themselves. Yeah. But that's just, you know, my own observations. But it is limited. interesting to know. I mean, Hong Kong's home to um, 67 billionaires, which I think is one of the mm. highest number other yeah. than the mainland in the United States. Um, how many of those billionaires have said anything uh, in yeah, yeah. any support of the mm. protesters? Um, well, the owner of Apple Daily has been come out and so is there a few? Yeah. Is he a billionaire? Yeah, yeah. Apple Daily? Jimmy, um, yeah, Jimmy Lai. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we got one and, of and his media has been very yeah. um, the Apple live stream. You know, I mean that that's actually one fascinating fascinating thing about the protests is that everything's mm. live streamed mm. and you can you can actually stay at home. And when it gets interesting, you're watching the live stream. Like everyone's watching it. Your taxi drivers watching it. People in the cafe are watching it. People at home are watching it. And you'll sit there like a movie, just switching mm -hmm. between the different live streams to see what's happening where. And oh, that's getting. That's looking a bit interesting now. Oh, okay. I'll get off the couch. I'll grab my stuff and I'll head down to join in. I mean, it's mm -hmm. an amazing. That's incredible. I mean, it's I... really incredible the live stream and and how each um, live stream channel uh, like. The battle to get to the front of the protests, and they're all elbowing each other to get the live stream up, and it's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, yeah and I, I remember when the uh, Tiananmen protest occurred in 1989. That was the first time that CNN was kind of covering it live. Mm -hmm. But you think, that, you know, jump for 25 years, it's now, you know, it's not one channel, but now we got, you know, a, a live screen of uh, different feeds like I have here with questions. <laughs> so I must do them justice and come back to some of them. So one. Um, one of the questions that uh, people have asked is the impact of the Taiwan election. So I wonder what people think about that. So I remember, it might have been Kevin who tweeted this, I can't remember, there was a, this striking advert 
that uh, the DPP ran in the final days before the election, kind of really contrasting uh, uh, the events of Hong Kong with the, the potential futures of Taiwan. So I wonder if people um, to add there. Yeah, I mean, I often talk about, you know, the impact of these events in Hong Kong, I mean, on Taiwan. Um, I think uh, I always preface this by saying one country, two systems was not popular in Taiwan, you know, prior to these protests in Hong Kong. But uh, I think it's fair to say that the protests and uh, the government response have also not been a good advertisement uh, for one country, two systems, right? Um, and, uh, you know, have as a result, um, you know, well, uh, taking a step back, uh, the, the idea of one country, two systems, uh, I think as, you, you know, you mentioned earlier, was designed to, you know, handle Hong Kong's return, um, but also then appeal to Taiwan, right, as a potential solution to this long-running, you know, disagreement of sorts that has been ongoing since uh, 1949, um, if not earlier. But the, the way that uh, things have actually played out, uh, I think, under uh, one country, two systems, in Hong Kong, is that rather than, you know, appealing to Taiwan as some kind of peaceful solution to this disagreement, we've actually seen, you know, ever more people in Hong Kong uh, feeling attracted to, you know, what I might call the Taiwan model, right, of, you know, a democratic nation uh, independent from uh, control by the, the People's Republic of China. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody that I know who, uh, you know, plays an important role in Hong Kong politics, you know, travel to Taiwan uh, for the presidential elections, you know, follow this very closely, and uh, was, you know, were really excited, right, uh, about uh, the results, which are, you know, not only an affirmation of the Taiwan model, but also, I think, you know, a, a powerful uh, you know, rebuke to, uh, you know, uh, the whole idea of uh, one country, two systems. Sophie or Yun, do you want to add anything on that, on the Taiwan, implications of the Taiwan elections? Taiwan model? I think, um, yeah, the Taiwan model is looking very attractive, as you're saying, for people in Hong Kong and for people in Taiwan, the Hong Kong model is looking very unattractive. Um, I think from from this uh, events, it's quite clear that you know um, basically the uh, Chinese Communist Party cannot really be trusted to really uphold uh, their end of the bargain. So um, I don't think there is any appetite in Taiwan for doing something similar. Oh no! Yeah, I agree. Okay. <laughs> In fact, no, sorry, Bill Bertels, to... my colleague, um, made a really great foreign correspondent. If you want to watch more about um, Taiwan and how it plays plays in with Hong Kong and the, the attitudes, um, I'd recommend watching that. So I've got I've got a question here on um, 
police, the, the viewpoint of police as well as police brutality? These are two different questions, but I think they both get to this issue that um, the role of the police uh, has been an issue of central concern. In fact, it's one of the five demands of the student protesters that there's some kind of independent uh, review of police conduct and brutality. Um, is, is there merit in that? I mean, uh, I haven't been on the ground. I mean, you, you mentioned some of these horrific scenes that mm. you saw. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you're dealing with an incredibly chaotic situation of urban warfare where uh, the police are charged with at least trying to restore some sort of order. Um, have they been over, overreaching the, the, the boundaries of, 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 of proper conduct? I think there was a point where they definitely overstepped the mark, when, and, and that's when the protests became much more violent, almost in response to that police brutality. Um, and, and that's where it, it just you know, seemed to spiral, and this was a chance, I think, that Beijing had to pull back, and they didn't. They went hard, and they, they, they hit these young protesters. They had a couple of weekends where, you know, like, smash bones, you know. Like, um, these kids had nothing in their backpacks but, you know, some kind of masks and, like, this was before it got really violent. And when you saw how these police reacted to these unarmed kids, I mean, there's, there's a couple of scenes in our story of a couple, a young couple on a train and the police run down and the, the station's been locked down and they're sitting on the floor of this train and there's a young man trying to um, protect his girlfriend as the police are just beating them and beating them and they're just sobbing and sobbing and it's just so traumatising, you know, for any parent in Hong Kong to watch and, see, you know, see how young people um, have been treated. It, it, that, that's what's, I think, pushed the population over the edge is to see that those few weekends of absolute police brutality that took place that summer in August mm. and, and then in response, the protesters did become a lot more violent. I mean, the scenes that you saw at the... Um, Hong Kong Polytechnic. At Poly yeah, the university um, were, were incredible, but that came after months of peaceful protests, and that's one thing to remember, is that it, there was m millions out on the streets for weekends and weekends before it got to that point. You know, there were opportunities for the police to pull back, and they didn't. And so... Um, yeah, there was some very interesting coverage in The Australian by Hedley Thomas that focused on those violent terrorist Hong Kong protesters that failed to mention the weekends and weekends of million people marches. So I think you, you can't just discuss it in isolation, you know, how violent it's become. And, you know, some scenes that, that, that we had in our story of the police, you think, OK, they are being restrained when they're, you know, surrounded by 30 young kids throwing rocks, but that only came after, you know, the police beat, and broke the bones of young unarmed kids as well. So, yeah. I think also it's uh, important to remember that what police has sometimes done is against their own internal guidelines. So, for example, they've been spraying paper spray directly at people's face, which is not allowed from their own rules. And there are also some evidence that they're intentionally provoking the protesters. Um, and I think... What the protests are not very happy about is that it appears that the police are not really facing any consequences for their actions. So, Kevin, I've got about like 15 minutes left, so I want to. There's got a lot of questions. Um, how do we go forward from here? So, I'll, I'll let you. If you want to bring in the police uh, oh, yeah. issue, I'll let you do that. But let me let me frame it in a slightly different way to sort of 
move forward. I mean, after we saw those scenes uh, uh, at Hong Kong Polytechnic, what we've kind of seen is that, maybe this is my reading of it, the movement's kind of lost a bit of steam, right, um, as you went into uh, the, the holiday period. And then added on top of that, you had the coronavirus outbreak. Um, I mean, has that, is, was the culmination of that violence uh, and coronavirus, uh, the coronavirus a kind of circuit breaker for the yeah. movement? Yeah. I, uh, before answering that, uh, I'll go back to the, the police uh, topic just to backtrack a little. I mean, I've, uh, I've inhaled a lot of tear gas the last, uh, eight months or so. Um, I, uh, I've been hit, uh, in my arm, uh, and on my forehead by, uh, fragments from beanbag rounds, um, simply for walking around, uh, protest sites. Um, so, uh, I tend to hold the opinion that the Hong Kong police, you know, are ostensibly working on crowd control. Um, but in reality, you know, what they're really doing is, I mean, instigating conflicts. Uh, you know, I've been in countless situations where things are peaceful, everybody's fine, and all of a sudden the police come, and it's just, you know, total chaos. Um, and uh, this is even true, you know, for the general public, people who are not involved in the protests. Uh, there was a situation... I believe in September, when I was uh, walking uh, on a walkway in Mankok while protesters were running away from the uh, Prince Edward police station, and police were firing tear gas, you know, protesters all had, you know, gear to uh, protect themselves, you know, full gas masks. And the only people who were affected by uh, the tear gas were <laughs> regular people on a walk, you know, on a Saturday night. Um, and every time that something like that happens, crowds are not controlled. Um, <laughs> people, uh, you know, develop strong and antagonistic opinions about the police. Um, and um, it only, you know, drives these tensions, you know, ever deeper. Um, on the uh, topic of an independent investigation of the police, that would be very nice, um, but people that I have talked to who have been, who know things about the current Hong Kong government do have questions about whether the government today even has the authority to... <laughs> Uh, affirm an independent investigation of the police and uh, without, you know, um, the police, you know, approving of it, right? Which doesn't seem terribly likely. Um, in terms of where we go from here... Okay, Kevin, I'm going to oh, cut you off. Sorry. No, 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 that's all right. Because I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to ask that question. We'll get each of the panel members to kind of, like, what's next, okay? Um What's next in terms of the protesters? What happens over the course of the next year? Does Corona change anything? But also, what's next for for, for Beijing and Xi? Uh, what's their next move? Uh, so maybe we'll just go down the panel. Start with Sophie, you and then uh, to to Kevin. Um, 
just in the immediate short term, I was speaking to some of the people who are in our story over the weekend just to ask them, you know, how they're feeling, you know. And um, they talked a lot about the coronavirus and how they can't trust the government and how scared they're feeling. And if anything, I think, you know, if, if mistrust of the government could sink any lower, like you think it couldn't, but it even it has even more because of um, their fear that they they have no one to look after them in Hong Kong. That's how that's how the people seem to feel at the moment. That they can't trust the Hong Kong government. They certainly don't trust Beijing. And so when you have this terrifying disease, um, you know that's where you see this panic buying. You know, there's the supermarkets in Hong Kong have run out of toilet paper in the last week, and tissues, and face masks, and hand sanitizer because people are terrified. You know, they they lived through the SARS cover up, and Hong Kong lost nearly three hundred people. In the died in Hong Kong as a result of SARS and there's so much anger at the central government over that and the, the failure to be honest about that early on. And they, So I think the coronavirus has added to mistrust that we've seen. Um, but the other thing I, that everyone always mentioned over the last few months was how exhausted they were. You know, everyone had given so much for so long and they welcomed like a break from the protests just because everyone was so personally traumatised, broke, exhausted just you know people were giving up so much of their time you know every night weekends lunch breaks like the the commitment of everyone was quite incredible so they almost welcomed kind of yeah the holiday period and cold weather and you know university being back and um and but they all said to me that that this was just kind of a temporary break. No one said that they were, you know, hanging up their um mask <laughs> um forever. So I think uh the coronavirus will change things and if you know if it gets a lot worse perhaps this summer will be less violent or there'll be less people on the streets we still don't know what's going to happen with the olympics i mean there's so much in the next few months that could play out but um definitely the the complaints you know they're long-term things that, that, that they're protesting about they're, they're not just going to go away anytime soon I agree that in the short run i think there will be return to protests i don't think this is a end it's a temporary stop, but I, I'm generally a pessimistic person, and I think in the long run, I actually think the future prospect for Hong Kong democracy is um, looking not so great. I think it's likely to be continually eroded um, through efforts by Beijing, and I think Beijing feels like can wait out, and I tend to agree with that. Um, I think that um, many who care most about democracy may leave or forced out, uh, being exiled, or generally made their lives um, even more difficult. And I think in the long run, eventually Hong Kong will just be um, another Chinese city. Now, of course, it's not set in stone. I mean, it also depends on the reaction of the international community, what other countries do. But I think in general, uh, from what I'm seeing, there's not really a big appetite for um, countries to really advocate human rights issues, uh, we've seen, for example, in the Trump administration is quite happy to let human rights slide in exchange for, say, trade issues. So, yeah, I think the prospect in the long run is quite bleak. Yeah, well, well when I was last in Hong Kong uh, in December, I could feel that things were, you know, really slowing down. And, of course, the events of this year uh, have you know, brought protests essentially to a stop. Um, everybody, you know, who was organizing these events has, you know, called them off mostly. Um, but the, the sources of anger 
uh, frustration, you know, remain unresolved, remain unchanged. Um, and Beijing's policies towards Hong Kong also seem relatively unchanged. Um, if we look at um, the new officials, uh, Luo Huning being put in place in the liaison office, Xia Baolong uh, taking over for Hong Kong affairs in Beijing, um, both of these appointments strike me as kind of doubling down on a hardline policy that produced these tensions to begin with. Um, so I think the situation will probably just continue to get worse before it has really any chance of getting better, uh, unfortunately. Um, I've seen talk of, you know, uh, proposing Article 23 again, which uh, <laughs> seems like a completely horrible idea that would just, you know, ratchet up tensions, uh, you know, to completely insane levels. Um, but that seems to be kind of how Beijing is governing Hong Kong at the moment. Um, and it's not terribly rational, but I, I don't see any um, path out of that cycle. So uh, what does that mean for Hong Kong? I mean, I, I know predictions are a dangerous game, but like, look forward 10 years from now. Is, I think Yun said it. Did you say it was this going to be another Chinese city? Yeah. It, does it just become another Chinese city? Um, what does it mean for its centrality in the, in, in the global economy? Um, could you envision uh, a scenario in which Hong Kong was independent in 10 years' time? One thing that really struck me when I interviewed some of the young leaders like Johnson Young, one thing that he said that kind of blew me away is that he's very realistic, Johnson, and he says, look, this is not a one-year, two-year thing. We're talking 20, 30 years. I'm in this for my mainland, you know, compatriots who I want to see them free. You know, I'm in this for them. And, and so those young leaders who, who don't just see it as a Hong Kong struggle, but they know that life will only improve for them once it improves for the people of mainland China. Once, so to, that is a long, long lens, look, look on things. But that's how they look at it, that this is a struggle for democracy, for the people of China. And they put, put their struggle within that. You know, the, not every protest you'll meet on the street, but when you talk to the leaders and the strategists, that's how they see it. And they know that, 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 that unless things improve on the mainland, nothing will improve for them, you know, con concrete gains. So I think, you know, and that's the size of the, the struggle they're up against because we know how big that, that struggle is. Um, so, yeah, when you look at it like that, Nothing's going to be solved soon, but yeah. it's definitely a battle that um, is going to continue. Mm. Any final last words, you and Kevin? Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would agree. I, I think that you know, if the political system in China remains unchanged, uh, the uh, prospects for you know Hong Kong are indeed you know quite bleak. Um, I would like to have something more optimistic to say, but, uh, you know, that's just how things are from my, you know, perspective. No, 
Okay. Um, for, well, please um, join me in thanking our panelists today. Uh, so, once again, Sophie McNeil from uh, the ABC, uh, Yun Jung from the ANU, and Kevin Carrico from Monash University. Um, so that brings our event to a conclusion. I've been uh, given an, an advert uh, for our next La Trobe Asia event, which will occur on the 5th of uh, March. Uh, we're very lucky uh, to help launch uh, the ANU's Rory Medcalf's uh, new book, uh, entitled A Contest for the Indo-Pacific, Why China Won't Map the Future. And he'll be in conversation with our own Beck Stratting, uh, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, and there will be a short introduction from Asia Link's uh, Penny, uh, Penny Burt. Uh, so please uh, join us uh, on the 5th of March for that next event, and I hope uh, wish you well uh, a good evening tonight. <laughs>